Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This week on the podcast, we continue with our theme, Serving the Public Interest. We're talking with local elected officials and non-elected government officials about what motivated them to work in government and what they're doing to increase civic engagement and break down barriers in their communities. And this week, I'm super excited uh, about the conversation we're having and thinking of especially that first part of the theme around, you know, motivations. Yeah, like pathways. What are these pathways, yes. pathways to get to? Uh, elected office because right. I, it, it seems foreign to me to have any like aspirations when I hear some people say, well, when I was a young child, I couldn't wait to run for public office. Yeah, <laughs> definitely was not on my radar. Like it was like I, I grew up in a family that was super political in the sense that my parents always voted. They brought me with them to vote. They talked about voting. They talked about elected officials. Um, they talked about being civically and politically engaged. But the idea that I would ever serve was never on my radar. Never. Yeah. Yeah, there was no there was no Kennedy esque grooming for public office <laughs> in my background. <laughs> yeah, and and that oftentimes, um, especially for women to run for elected office, they have to be asked multiple times, right? Like to have like to have that that moment of like, yeah, maybe I should. And so in this conversation, um, thinking about the di- like when, and so we are talking um, to Kathleen Clyde, who's run for a couple different offices. And, and what motivated her initially to kind of to think about that role and that it wasn't that childhood, like, I think one day I shall be president. And I love it. I love the story. I love how she came to think about running for office and what that means to her. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things I really appreciate about Kathleen's story is that, uh, and maybe this is true for many women who finally take the plunge, that it wasn't about... Uh, amplifying her voice or getting more power for her. That was not on the agenda. Yeah. It was recognizing, recognizing uh, there was a, there's a pretty big gap in, in who is, who is in the room and whose voices were being heard. Or, or that was my, my interpretation of our conversation. So I'm really excited to share it with our listeners. All right, we're here today with Kathleen Clyde. Kathleen grew up in Garrettsville, Ohio, a small town in Northeast Portage County. Kathleen earned her BA in English from Wesleyan University. After college, she spent two years working for an organization fighting homelessness in Central Ohio. She then joined the John Kerry presidential campaign as Ohio College Coordinator, working to engage young people across Ohio in the democratic process. Kathleen earned her JD from the Ohio State University College of Law, where she served as an editor of the Law Review and graduated as a public service fellow with the Dean's Highest Honors. She served as an election official in the 2008 presidential election, overseeing the setup and operation of the early early voting center in Franklin County, Ohio. 
In 2010, she ran for office from her home in Portage County, winning a close election and going on to serve four two-year terms in the Ohio House of Representatives. She fought for workers, organizing opposition, and helping defeat anti-collective bargaining legislation for public service workers on the statewide ballot in 2011. She fought for women, sponsoring the Ohio Equal Pay Act for three straight general assemblies, and holding hearings on the unprecedented attacks on women's reproductive health care slipped into various state budget bills. She has also become known as a national expert on election and voting rights issues, helping mount legal defenses to various anti-voter measures eventually vetoed or found to be unconstitutional in state and federal courts, including the United States Supreme Court. In 2018, she was the Democratic nominee for Ohio Ohio Secretary of State, garnering over 2 million, that's 47% of votes in her first run for statewide office. Kathleen is currently president of the Portage County Commissioners, having been appointed in 2018. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to join you. Kathleen, it's so fabulous to have you here. So to start off with, um, can you tell us just a little bit about your role as Portage County Commissioner? Like, So in particular, what are some of the kind of general duties that you have in your current position? Sure. Uh, well, I'll be retiring uh, from my current position as a county commissioner here very soon, as I was not successful in uh, the most recent 2020 election. And it's surprises even me that I've been in the office for two years. I took the appointment uh, right after the statewide run in 2018, and uh, there was no break in between. I went right into it, and uh, a county commissioner was a really fascinating job, and I am sad that I won't be able uh, to continue. Uh, You're like uh, the chief executive of uh, the county in Ohio, of course, there's 88 counties. Portage County uh, has about 170,000 people. Uh, and the county is uh, has a number of departments that we run. And we're in charge of staffing those departments, uh, overseeing the policies uh, that come out of uh, the work that they do, and then pretty all-importantly, the budget uh, for uh, spending our county residents' tax dollars in uh, pursuit of uh, public service to county residents. And we oversee the budget for the entire county, including the other elected officials in the county, so the sheriff, uh, the judges, the county engineer, uh, and so on. But then we have our own department separate from that, which we're uh, much more intimately involved in the day-to-day. So I've, I've said it's it's been a very interesting experience for me. When I ran for Secretary of State, uh, you know, that, that would have been a very big uh, state department with a lot of staff. But in some ways, being a commissioner was interesting because it was a larger staff and a larger budget uh, than I would have had in that state office. So it was really great experience for me of uh, overseeing a large department, a large budget, and a large staff. And I keep saying departments, that's a little oblique, I guess. I, I would say we have things like recycling services in the county. That's our solid waste department. Uh, we have a water resources department. So overseeing uh, water and sewer service for 
thousands of county residents. Uh, we have job and family services, so dealing with children's services, dealing with uh, unemployed workers and linking them to employment. Uh, it, it really kind of runs the gamut of the everyday services that citizens need and, and interact with. And it was, uh, and, and still is for a short time longer, a very cool experience to, to get to do that work. What drew you to this type of work? Why did you decide to initially run for elected office? That is a good question. And it's morphed some over time. You know, I've, I served eight years in the legislature in Ohio and two years in this local office. One big difference between the two offices is the time I've been in the county commission, it's still partisan and it has been two ones, so two Democrats and one Republican. Uh, when, and I'm a Democrat. When I was in the legislature, I was always in a deep minority and such, such a difference to go from uh, your decisions not being uh, the decisions that carry the day. Uh, to, to what we had at, at the county. So that that's still, it was kind of a earth shattering difference for me and, and the types of service. But, you know, I didn't really know that I would run for office. I wasn't somebody uh, that said my entire life, you know, one day I'm going to run for president or I'm going to run for Congress or whatever it is. I just, you know, I was in law school at Ohio State. Uh, it was a great place to go to school because it's right in the state capital. So there's lots of opportunities to intern and interact uh, with government leaders. And I took advantage of those. I actually clerked for the Secretary of State when I was a third-year law student. And I worked uh, during one semester in the Ohio Senate. Uh, so I got some direct exposure to the state house. And in law school, uh, there were a lot of uh, people, uh, all men, uh, that talked about running for office and saw themselves in elected office and talked about what they would do uh, when they were elected. And I noticed that women weren't part of that conversation. So I just started talking about that I was going to run for office someday too and what what I would do when I was in office, in part just to make sure women were part of that conversation too. And then, you know, little by little, it, it was something I started to think of maybe I should consider doing something like this. And then when I worked in the state house, I got to know other elected leaders and I saw the kind of work they did and what it took uh, to, to run a campaign and to get into that position and I thought I might have the skill set uh, to be able to do that. It is it is kind of a weird skill set to both be a policymaker, but to do the work to get into that elected office. And uh, I thought I could do it, including the fundraising piece, which is you know not the fun uh, part of of political office, but an important piece to getting elected. And. I think just, you know, thinking about it, being exposed to it, wanting more women to, to be part of our government uh, just motivated me to seek out a position, honestly, a lot sooner than I ever would have thought. I mean, I was the youngest elected woman in the Ohio General Assembly 
uh, when, when I ran in 2010 and I'm glad I did, but it, you know, it wasn't something I thought for a long, long time, but I, that kind of just shows that anyone can think about it and look into it and learn about it. And hopefully if it's a good idea for them, you know, have at it. And, and we need, we need uh, committed, dedicated, uh, smart people to make that decision. I love that. So Casey used to teach uh, women in politics and I serve on kind of the organizing group for elector at Kent state. So we're definitely love that story of like recognizing that you can do it and uh, thinking about the gender dynamics in elected office and running for elected office and who says they want to. Right. <laughs> but I have a yeah. quick follow-up actually, and mostly for our listeners, because one of our goals is to kind of, make sure some of the language that we use uh, is defined. So I just wanted to ask real quick, what does it mean to clerk? So clerk is like a law school term that we use. It, I, I use it somewhat interchangeably with intern, but uh, it is it was a paid position uh, in the case of the Secretary of State's office, unpaid, but uh, part of a class. Uh, that I got credit for and had a professor assigned to help. It was clinical uh, class where we clerked in the Ohio Senate. Basically, it meant to intern, but I think with with law students, there's usually a particular focus on making sure you're getting uh, some legal experience uh, with with the work that you're doing. Uh, so there tends to be these like different words we attach to things, but it's kind of a glorified intern. But in the case of the law, uh, you want to try to make sure you're getting some exposure to w- what kind of legal work you may be doing down the road. Now, I, I want to ask because this current series that we're recording uh, that you're going to be an episode of is serving the public interest. And you've had such an interesting experience uh, both being in the Ohio House of Representatives and, you know, people kind of, I think, have a pretty good idea what that means to be a representative where, you know, you're voting on bills and you're bringing forth bills and you're going to committee hearings. But uh, you've also served as a commissioner, which is very much in kind of the realm of public administrator. Uh, mm-hmm. So th- it is a different role. Uh, what does serving the public interest look like for you? How are these things kind of both in service of the public interest? You know, for me, I tend to think of public interest, and I don't mean to sound necessarily brass tacks about this, but, you know, I what I am doing is not about earning money and uh, earning profit. It is about, you know, when you work in the business or on the for-profit side, you're beholden to shareholders or to a bottom line and you are in the private sector and the profit sector. And I feel like I'm in work in the public interest. So what I am doing is not about earning a profit. It is about uh, maximizing uh, public support uh, for what I'm doing. It is about making sure the decisions I'm making have some public good associated with them. Uh, and whether it be something off in the future that we're striving towards or something very immediate, like uh, dealing with the pandemic uh, that we've been in or uh, you know, recycling has been a big topic uh, in, in the county and in our region. 
and just, you know, thinking about, um, you know, every aspect of the community when you're uh, making those decisions. And for me, serving in the public interest is what makes me tick. Like that's, that's what I want to be thinking about. Uh, and that, that kind of common good and common goal, and also just making things more accessible. It's, it's often sad to me that people, there's a lot of barriers to understanding what goes on in government, what your leaders are doing, uh, what, what a certain office means, how to get access to information. And, you know, I wish that that were easier uh, to access and understand. And then also people don't necessarily have time, even if all of that was super available and easy to figure out. Um, so just trying to overcome those barriers and help people understand that what we are doing is is good and important and hopefully helpful to them and trying to understand what helpful to them means is always important. So, you know, having, having access and, and breaking down those barriers is important for so many reasons. Hopefully that makes sense. There's a lot of different gobbledygook in that answer, but um, it means a lot of things. (laughs) I actually want to pick up on that question a little bit and ask, right? So you worked um, on the John Kerry campaign in 2004. You served four terms on the Ohio House of Representatives and you serve as a, as a Portage County commissioner. Can you describe some of the differences about working at these different levels of government or working on campaigns at different levels, right? So you kind of moved between lots of different spaces. I'd love to really hear what that's been like for you, but also to help us understand and our listeners understand kind of the the differences between those um, levels of government. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I do feel like the state house in a lot of ways is such an, a interesting combination of local and like federal in some ways where you're like dealing with the national issues of the day, especially as Congress is gridlocked, you're not a lot of policy coming uh, out of our federal government. States are doing so much policy making. So really in state legislatures, you're a, a policymaker, but you have a district that is small enough in the case in Ohio and every state's different in Ohio, our districts are about 130,000 people, which is a lot, but also small enough that you get to know a lot of those people. You're in front of them, you see them and you hear from them and you know, you interact with kind of grass tops leaders or nonprofit leaders, public leaders enough that you get to know each other, you know, the issues very well. So it's such a, a cool combination of like, of the good things about local government and the kind of the cool flashy things about getting to work on important policy. Um, it's different when people are contacting you a lot, like when people are engaging with you on the, in the legislature, it's, will you vote yes on this or no on this? And if they're contacting you about something else, often you're not the right person to be contacting because you're a legislator and, and that is what you do, unless you can introduce a bill on their particular issue. But a lot of times that's not quite right. The other thing you do do is you are a gateway to 
the people in your district to the different agencies and state government. So if they're having a problem where they're not getting their Medicaid expansion, you know, they're having trouble accessing their health care, you can contact a liaison in that department and connect them and, and get them help that way. So, and when a state representative calls, it's, it's like almost like a direct line of, okay, we better not screw this up. We better help this person. And so that was an important uh, piece of, of dealing with the public and engagement from that office. At the county, you're, you're like, you're closer to people uh, but in some ways, it is harder to engage because I think you're not in the limelight as much, or people just don't understand necessarily what county government does. And you know, where the state has the resources of the entire state and a legislative body with a lot of institutional memory and history, there are resources that that pulls that makes it so that the website is is pretty user-friendly and it's easy to find minutes and there's live recordings of every session. It's not like that at the county. I mean, the website is, you know, there's challenging to, to, to do and maintain and, and keep up and you just don't have the same resources to, to be as accessible. So unfortunately, I think the engagement is actually harder uh, at that level and it's more based on people having a personal relationship with you and maybe interacting with you because they know who the different elected officials are uh, or they know the names, so they know to reach out to you. So, yeah, I, I would say, you know, and then I've campaigned on a presidential campaign too, and I never met the candidate. Um, you know, it's like, I, I just think about that now, having run statewide myself and, uh, it is kind of fascinating just the different levels of this. And one of the things I loved about running for office at the state house level was knocking on doors and being able to actually look my voters in the eyes and ask for their vote. And when you run statewide, I mean, there's no more knocking on doors at that point. You're just, you know, on TV and, trying to get to events and get in the media so that voters will see your name and see your quote and hopefully like what they see. And it's just so different and less personal. Yeah. That, that, that's gotta be such a different experience uh, working across that. I, it, it, I really appreciate you sharing that for our listeners. The other thing that you mentioned before that I kind of wanted to ask a follow-up about was that, so we're recording right still, still, still in the midst of this public health crisis, our, our COVID-19 pandemic. How has COVID-19 shaped your work? I would, I would imagine if you're running for office, it's shaped your work a lot. You can't go door to door, right? Uh, but, but just also your work as county commissioner uh, and the work of the county, how has it kind of shaped how you've had to do things differently? Well, on the campaign side, it was definitely an impact. I've never had a local race where I didn't knock on doors. And we, uh, on the Democratic side, all made the collective decision that it just wasn't safe uh, to knock on doors. And we didn't want to put ourselves, our volunteers, and most importantly, uh, the people whose doors we were knocking on uh, at, at risk to win a election. It just really wasn't uh, worth it. Although, you know, that's 
that's such an important tool um, for for local campaigns. Uh, so you know, we did things virtually and and tried our best. But I I do look back and think that you know I wouldn't have done it any differently because of the pandemic. But that definitely I think hurt us uh, at the polls. Uh, the pandemic has just been all-consuming uh, for uh, most leaders that I know, certainly at the local level, because I think as there's been a complete vacuum uh, at the federal level in dealing with this pandemic, uh, some leadership, especially early on at the state level, uh, and then a lot of confusing uh, decisions coming from our governor and, and the state uh, more recently, and I think after that first early just show of strong leadership, um, the local leaders have really just had this dumped on us with few resources uh, and little, uh, you know, little experience in dealing with a global uh, crisis. It's not usually something you do with just the local approach. So it's been really hard and something that I've taken very seriously. And I feel lucky that the leaders that I am serving with have also uh, taken it very seriously. And we pushed through a number of policies very quick, uh, implementing telework for all of our employees that were able to. Some of our employees are just essential on site and we couldn't, um, we couldn't lose them from the, from, being in the office, but making a lot of changes in our office setting so that they and the public they interact with would be safe, uh, implementing fair leave policies so that people wouldn't come to work if they were sick or if they had uh, kids that were uh, going to be doing remote learning, either because they were choosing that or because that's what the school district was doing. And, and making sure we were having family-friendly policies so that we were keeping our best asset at the county is, is our workers, uh, but not putting them in a position where uh, they couldn't uh, do their jobs. And then all the work that we've done throughout the county of distributing uh, personal protective equipment, uh, being a coordinator of uh our response in different uh, ways, whether it be finding quarantine shelter, uh, transportation, uh, helping improve access to testing, uh, doing local uh, regular media briefings so our local media knows uh, what, what the response is. Um, those were all activities that I was intimately involved with setting up and then keeping going. And uh, I'm still, you know, even at the end of my term, uh, pretty heavily involved in and trying to help set up uh, for for the new year, uh, as well as our budget turns over. And we just put the finishing touches on grant program that we did to help small businesses locally and to help uh, residents locally with rent, uh, utilities, and uh, mortgage assistance uh, because of just the impact we've seen on our businesses and on our residents has been pretty large and, you know, doing what we can with the federal funds that were finally sent down to us. And with a very short amount of time to spend them, we got them out and into the hands of residents who need it. 
I think people really kind of forget how much counties are responsible for uh, and can impact their day-to-day lives. Uh, One thing that has kind of gotten a lot of attention is, uh, as you noted, our our governor was pretty strong in the beginning um, in in, in determining um, how to uh, uh, kind of put out uh, health-related protocols and issues, and that's waned uh, over the months. So the counties have had to pick up the slack. What is the relationship between the county commission and the health department? In our county, it's very strong. Uh, And the health department is actually uh, the lead in the county for uh, the response. And there's two health departments in our county. There's the county health department. And then the city of Kent has their own health department. Uh, So our reach goes until the, the Kent border, uh, but we have worked very closely uh, with the city of Kent's health department uh, as well. And our hospital too has been an, sort of an informal but important uh, partner in, in these efforts. And I think that from the very beginning, we worked very closely together. I think the health department really appreciated the strong leadership from the elected side in the county. Um, the health department is a is not an elected office and it's not an elected board that oversees it. So they're they are separate from us. But I think uh, that's a very tough position to be in enforcing some of these measures and even just getting the word out about what was in place. And I think uh, they appreciated what we brought to the table as far as helping provide that that might behind their efforts and then also the communications piece that we helped with. And that built the trust, I think, very quickly uh, that we were in it with them and we've worked really closely hand-in-hand uh, ever since. And I feel very lucky that in this county, we've had that. It has not been uh, very political. You know, I, I I watch and it's just very sad what's happening in state legislatures. And in our own legislature, I think currently we have four or five members that are that have tested positive. They show up at, you know, hearings without masks. They, you know, could be in, it's like super spreader events every time they come together. And we have not been like that. We've been meeting virtually since I want to say April and, you know, just common sense. This should never have been political, but it became political. And, you know, I feel thankful that I didn't have to deal with that on, on the local level. I don't know how I will how I would have dealt with that because it's been so much work and so hard and so devastating to see what's happened, how many people have gotten sick. We've had a a large number of deaths and it's been important that we're all focused on it and, and take it seriously. Absolutely. I want to pivot momentarily, unless there's a follow-up there, but um, kind of want to go in a slightly different direction. So apologies, but I, but you've become known as a national expert on voting rights issues and kind of the work that we do is really grounded in civic and political engagement and kind of breaking down what that means and all of the different intricacies and of uh, how people can be involved and create change in their own world. 
Can you tell us a little bit about your work in kind of voting rights? Um, And then if you think it's relevant, maybe even how we make sense of it in this current moment of, right, the ongoing fight to disenfranchise voters that we witnessed over the last kind of presidential election. Sure. Uh, It's terrible what we're seeing right now with the response, you know, the Trump administration, Trump, you know, just creating so much distrust and defiance, open defiance to the result of, of an election that was a fair election and uh, that Joe Biden clearly won decisively. I have been involved in, in voting rights work uh, for a long time now. And I would say that 2004, when I worked on the presidential election, was what really kind of galvanized uh, in me an interest in, in fixing our, our election system. And listeners may or may not know or recall, but, you know, Ohio was sort of the black eye of the country in the 2004 presidential election. We had a secretary of state who uh, was problematic in so many different ways. For one, he was the chair of the Bush Cheney reelection campaign while also serving as the secretary of state and the chief elections official. Uh, he made decisions that even as a, you know, little staffer on a presidential campaign helping coordinate uh, college campuses, he made the decision to throw out uh, voter registration uh, forms that they weren't on the heavier cardstock of paper. And we had to fight him in court. But in the meantime, you know, thousands of these forms were uh, not being uh, accepted. And that was something when you're on a college campus working with students, of course, a big piece of that is, is voter registration. So I knocked right into that. And then when the election itself came, uh, Ohio just had horribly long lines uh, all throughout the state. I waited in my Columbus precinct at the time for three hours uh, to vote. And that was you know, nothing compared to the five, six, uh, seven hour long lines in Ohio. And the last person in the country to vote uh, was a Kenyan college student who voted a little after 3 a.m. I believe it was 2 or 3 a.m. after waiting in line for uh, 11 hours uh, because the voting machines, I think there were two in that precinct and they both broke down for most of the day. So huge line. And to me, I knew those college students. I had been working with them as, as part of the campaign. And, you know, it was awful to see lines of black people waiting in line that of course, black people experienced the longest lines. Uh, and then also, you know, these young people that I had been working with were uh, caught up in these measures that, you know, made it harder for Ohioans to cast their vote. And I took one look at that election and just thought, I want to be part of fixing this. And I had deferred my admission to Ohio State to go to law school before the campaign to work on the campaign. 
in part because I just wasn't sure if I wanted to go to law school. A lot of, I think a lot of people have that, you know, do I do this or not? What am I going to do? And then after the campaign, I was, I am going to law school. I'm going to learn about voting rights issues. Ohio State in particular has an election law program uh, that's, you know, has a lot of national recognition for the work that they, that they do. And so I was, even before I was a student, I signed up to be a research assistant for one of the professors there who was doing work on voter ID, photo ID laws were popping up around the country. So I helped him with uh, an article he was publishing on that. And it just kind of took off from there. I, I learned everything I could in law school. I did the work, uh, like I said, clerking for the Secretary of State. Uh, I clerked uh, one summer at the Brennan Center for Justice, which is a national voting rights organization. Uh, and then when I got my start in the State House, it was 2010. And 2010 kind of lives in infamy as a year when Republicans took over state houses across the country, including in Ohio, and started adopting as many voting restrictions uh, as they could in response to the 2008 voter turnout with new uh, voters, uh, voters of color, young voters turning out in record numbers. They were the target of all of these different voting restrictions. So. I just became a warrior in the legislature, fighting those, finding them. They would be tucked into things of, you know, the Republicans would come out with innocuous sounding reasons for why, you know, we needed this, well, we just need an ID so that we can help smooth the process along and make it easier for poll workers. I mean, just they'll say anything uh, to, to try to justify these these measures and a number of them passed in Ohio. Of course I was in the minority, but we fought a number of them and won in court. Uh, we did get governor Kasich to veto a couple of them, which wasn't easy. Um, he signed a large number of them as well. And that's just, you know, that's, that fueled then my run for secretary of state of wanting to be in that role and, and try to fix, uh, elections from the administrative side, and I still remained active. Uh, you know, we did a effort statewide with a bunch of local Democratic elected officials to try to uh, make sure that we had a fair and accessible election, even in a pandemic. And what does that look like? And what should we be pushing our state leaders to do? And what can we do on the local level to to ensure it's safe for our residents? So it's something I'm very passionate about. And there's more than just the election administration piece. There's the gerrymandering uh, piece, which I certainly suffered through as a member of a gerrymandered legislature and seeing the awful effect that has on voters and the public and their belief in, in the good that our government can do. And then, of course, the campaign finance uh, piece and how messed up you know, our money and politics situation is, and there's just so much uh, that we need to do uh, to fix uh, the system itself. And that's just something that I feel passionate about. And I know that it touches every issue. It's, it's 
you care deeply about an environmental issue, climate change, or uh, anti-discrimination, or, or whatever it is, if you can't get in and, and cast your vote and, and have your voice, you know, what, what good is it? So I, I hope I can keep working on that issue and keep fixing it. And our democracy is, is so important if we can keep it. You've also spent a lot of effort um, on women's rights issues. So as in the Ohio House of Representatives, you sponsored the Ohio Equal Pay Act and fought for women's reproductive health care. Can you tell us about some of the barriers you experienced when fighting for these important issues? Sure. In Ohio, fighting for uh, reproductive health care is just so tough because it's just such a hostile legislature on those issues. And I remember when I first ran for office, people, of course, asked me what my position on abortion rights were, and I I would usually quick, quickly pivot and say, I'm pro-choice, uh, but, you know, what I hope to be able to work on, and then I would, you know, I didn't really want to be talking a lot about abortion, and I didn't think that was what was on the top of the minds of all of uh, the people who were going to be voting in the election. And then it felt like it was top of mind once I got to the legislature, because it was just every, you know, every month we would be on the floor debating a different abortion issue. And they, I mean, it was just all kinds of things I just never would have thought of and awful. And that, again, when I got to the legislature, it was this big swing to the right. Uh, and there were abortion restrictions being introduced in states. And Ohio was right in there of just, you know, dozens of them. So that was awful. Uh, and it's hard because there aren't a lot of women uh, in the legislature. Um, and it it falls to uh, women to stand up uh, for those for choice, and it's a tough issue to to talk about and to to constantly be quoted on and to look like your you know that's all you're focused on. Um, and so it was just really hard, and I I became more and more vocal. Uh, as we went through. And when I first got to the legislature, there were not a lot of women who were willing to stand up and fight on choice issues. And by the time I left, there were more. And that kind of made me feel better about where our place was, because I just you know, it was sad that I got there and there just weren't enough people fighting. And now there are more, but they are still outnumbered. So it is really tough. Um, I hope, I hope Ohio women are paying attention. Um, of course, these issues fall disproportionately uh, on lower income women and uh, women who are not in urban areas. Uh, their access to abortion has just been so severely restricted, uh, and it's it's sad. Um, and I hope somehow we can uh, turn the tide back. And I'm not sure what the path is, but um, it is it's very difficult to think about uh, equal pay. Uh, 
you know, I was a sponsor of the Equal Pay Act for all four terms uh, in office. The Republican legislators never took it seriously, uh, wouldn't give us hearings. Um, they would give us one hearing, usually at the very end of the legislature, because they are required to give every bill one hearing. Uh, so they'll have these hearings at the very last day of the legislature before it closes, where they put like a hundred bills on the agenda and that's your one hearing. And I would usually just decline because I just thought that it's insulting uh, that they do that. But I would usually just promote the bill throughout the year and, and try to build support and show people, Hey, there are people that care that you're not getting equal pay. And again, especially disproportionate for women of color. Um, it is the most depressing thing. Once I finally understood what equal pay day was, and I assume you guys probably know this, but you know, when it's someday in March is like white women or women's equal pay. And it's when on average, it takes a woman until March to catch up from the previous year of what uh, an average male uh, made in the same uh, position. But like Latina equal pay day is like in October. I mean, it is. And then this year, somehow I had not caught this in previous years, like Native American women's equal pay day was like, I feel like it was a week ago. I mean, it's so awful. And to not be able to talk about those issues is just unbelievable. And that's where I think we have to take some of these fights and have executive leadership kind of showing leadership. And we've seen some of that. We've seen some of our mayors address this more seriously. And there are things that, that the private sector is even doing uh, to show their commitment to equal pay. Uh, I think we should push our universities uh, to do more, uh, for example, and hopefully one day like these you know, cavemen-like attitudes in the legislatures will catch up. But it's a tough fight, but it's it's a pretty important one. Um, so my question, I think, uh, you know, is really builds on that um, and maybe is a little bit more, just more specific. So our project, the Growing Democracy Project, is is really interested in, in breaking down barriers um, and building bridges between disconnected groups. And we mean that super broadly <laughs> and really amplifying the work that different people are doing that we don't always know about. So from your perspective, how can elected officials help create a more inclusive society where more individuals can be involved, but also feel like they can be involved in the political process? It's kind of a loaded question, sorry. <laughs> it's hard. Um, and I think it's something that I've gotten better at over time uh, about inclusivity and intersectionality too. Um, I know one of the things that's always helped me is the young people that I've had working for me schooling me on some of these things. Like I remember, I think about all the voting rights work I've done. And when the suffragette uh, movie came out a couple of years ago, I was interested in 
you know, doing, I was trying to think, what could I do? Could I host some kind of movie night or, or whatever? And my, my legislative aide, you one staff person when you're in the legislature kind of pulled me aside and said, you know, look, that, you know, there's a lot of uh, race issues in the suffragette movement and they do not have, you know, these, these women that are featured, they're not necessarily telling the full story in this movie. It's getting a lot of criticism. Did you know this, this, and this? And I didn't really. Uh, and at first I kind of pushed back and said, oh, you know, really like this, you know, seems so cool. Maggie, I, I can't even think of who it was now. I, I, I know it's not that long ago, but anyway, then I read the articles and, um, looked at a few, you know, things that she pointed me to and thought, okay, no, she's right. I'm not going to do this. Um, and I'm going to think about ways that I can try to undo, uh, some of the harm that this type of whitewashing of things, uh, creates. And that's just taken me a while, uh, to get to a place where I think of my role as a leader in, you know, how can I think from different perspectives and, and not be stubborn and, and think and change and uh, just be better and set a better example and hope that others will uh, be motivated to, to learn and go through the kind of thinking that, that I am. So I think that's, it's, that's a piece of it is kind of just showing your commitment uh, to it. I think too, that I'm very committed to amplifying uh, colleagues and other leaders uh, and uh, younger uh, leaders too, and trying to share uh, their viewpoints and maybe show them, you know, like, look, uh, to a young black woman, maybe at, at Kent State, like the likelihood that she would have a black woman leader representing her in, in this area, probably not, um, likely, uh, or much harder, uh, but nearby, you know, there's amazing, uh, black women leaders and connecting and, and talking about them. And so, so seeing herself, uh, in these other, you know, people that you can kind of connect and amplify and open the wor their worlds to, and it also helps you. It's like, oh, they think, well, Kathleen, showed me this and introduced me to this and I now know about and like her and you know it, it's this broader movement so thinking about it that way it, you know too of who can you amplify I always it's funny I talk to my staff and you know we like talk about social media and retweeting and posting and I always say can we find women reporters and I try you know I just try not to amplify the typical white male voice uh when there's other 
great options uh, out there and just uh, uh, things like that. So making sure that we're very inclusive when we're thinking about our, our voice and our role. Uh, and then also just being very um, open to having public conversations, to having, uh, you know, a town hall meeting, or in this case, during the pandemic, I've had hosted community conversations that I have put live on my Facebook page, that I invite people to attend, that I ask for comments, that I take the comments and ask you know, the questions that people ask and you just engage with people so that they feel like they have a, they have somebody that is listening to them and thinking about them when they're doing their work uh, in government and when they're thinking about casting the, their votes or which policy they're going to develop. So being open to that, uh, it can create some difficulty. You know, there's, you know, for every time you open something up for comments, <laughs> of course, there's going to be some unpleasant ones, but that's part of it. You also get some really engaging and, and interested people. So just being willing to sort through some of the crazy or, you know, just not helpful stuff to get uh, to a place where you're having some dialogue. Uh, I think that's important. And then finally, I'll say too, sometimes when you do open yourself up and you create dialogue, uh, you have people out there that are hurting uh, or that are struggling uh, or who have uh, tried a lot of different uh, things and felt like the, you know, the door has been slammed in their face. And by the time they're, expressing their thought or question or suggestion uh, to you. It's, you know, maybe coming in hot and, you know, it, it's tense uh, and just being ready for that, you know, and I do not take that stuff personally. And I just feel, I try to feel it's a privilege to, to get to hear that, uh, person out and that they would bring something to me that's a mess and isn't all figured out yet and polished and present it and that I get to kind of work with that and, and try to help them out. And I think if more of us could, could try to approach it that way and, and let our defenses down, I think that uh, that would be a good way that, you know, we could try to break through this environment that we're in where it's uh, just feels uh, very stressful and us versus them and very polarizing. So I applaud what you're trying to do and, and breaking down these barriers and building bridges. And I'll, I'll pledge to try to do the same as well. Kathleen, uh, Ashley and I both got teary-eyed. Our listeners can't see us, but we both got teary-eyed listening to that because that, that's what we want our elected officials to do. And that's what we would hope um, all of them are capable of doing. And so let's hope from right your your lips to their ears. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with our listeners? Any words of wisdom? I feel like I have gone on and on uh, to these uh, questions. So uh, my apologies for the wordiness. It's 
it's fun to get to have an actual conversation uh, with young-ish. I'm like, when do I get to still say I'm young? I don't know if I do anymore. But women in my uh, peer set who are very accomplished and who care about, you know, this conversation and about engaging uh, people and uh, your students, but the, our community and, and everyone that that entails is, is really inspiring to me and, and made me um, really want to contribute something. So I just want to say, I appreciate uh, that opportunity very much. And I hope, I hope this was helpful. And I, I hope that people will persevere through the frustrating uh, road ahead and think about, you know, what role we each can play, whether it's in our, our city, uh, our state, or, or even with our national leaders and know that our voice is important and, and not to give up, uh, you know, keep fighting. We each can make a difference. Our elected leaders need to know where we stand and if we're behind them or if we're not, you know, we got to stand up for what we believe in and try with everything we can with what time we have, whether it be a lot or a little uh, to make a difference and make our communities better. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate having you. Thank you guys. I loved this. So um, thank you for reaching out and good luck uh, with your future conversations. I'll certainly be listening. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy Podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan and my co-host is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is edited by Jeremy Demery at Gold Knox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio and supported by the American Political Science Association. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about serving the public interest.